0: Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people, talking to thought leaders and practitioners to help make you a better product manager, product marketer, or just build better products. If that sounds right up your street, there's plenty more over on OneNightInProduct.com where you can sign up to the mailing list, subscribe on your favourite podcast app, or follow the podcast on your favourite social media platform, and guarantee you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we get radical again and talk about some of the types of digital pollution that we're all bringing to the world with our products these days. We talk about the product Hippocratic Oath and how we as product managers need to take responsibility for the change our products make in the world, and that tricky balance between security and privacy, and how the very core of democracy could be at stake if we get it wrong. We also talk about a shocking story of a Silicon Valley heavyweight who was going to give a forward for a book, found out that it was talking a bit about ethics, said, I don't like the sound of that, and ran for the hills screaming. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight should sound familiar. Keen-eared listeners may remember a few weeks back we were talking about digital ethics and I said something like, that's probably too big a topic to do justice to now. We'll probably do a different episode on a different day. Well, guess what? It's a different day. I'm delighted to welcome back Super Spy and radical product thinker Radica Dut, author of recently released Radical Product Thinking and advocate of the digital Hippocratic Oath, through which she hopes to get us all to take responsibility for the change our products bring to the world. Radica, welcome back. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you so much for having me back, Jason. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, it's excellent to have you here, and like I say, we're in uncharted territory, my first ever returned guest, so I'm hoping that I don't ask you all the same questions again. Although, before we get into our main topic today, I did want to ask this question last time, and I couldn't because the book wasn't out yet. But the book is out yet now. So how's the reception been so far?
1: The reception has been great. And more than anything, what was really important to me was that I wanted people to see this not just as a book about how to do product management. This is so much more than a book about product management. So that makes me truly happy. The second thing is that it has been received internationally as a book that's important. It's not just a US audience. And that truly thrills me. That was one of the things which, you know, you might remember, we talked about that, you know, I wanted to bring this global perspective of
0: yeah, absolutely
1: what it means to build world changing products. It can't just be the Silicon Valley centric perspective. And I'm truly happy that, you know, it resonated with people around the world.
0: Yeah, that's really good. And I think interesting, in a sense, with regards to some of the stuff we're going to be talking about in a bit, because of course, The majority of the big tech firms are all based out of Silicon Valley or around and about, right? And in many ways, they could be considered some of the worst offenders. Although I know in the book, you also say that it's kind of everyone, it's not just them. But it still is interesting, this idea about the ethical digital pollution aspect of it, like whether that would resonate so much with people around the world who maybe think that they're kind of a bit on the good side because they're not, quite as bad as some of these people did you get any feedback like that or did you feel that that message really resonated with non silicon valley audiences
1: you know it is fascinating that you bring that up first of all i will say that my even inclusion of this chapter on digital pollution and then on hippocratic oath of product was very polarizing i <laughs> haven't met a single person who has said to me oh you know like it's fine i didn't particularly care there are people who are Adamant that they're so glad I included it, and others who feel like there was no place for those two chapters in this book. Uh And there's one other thing, maybe I'll share that I had not talked about in other podcasts. Oh yes, when I was first (laughs) when I was first writing this book, there was someone I had asked to write the foreword for the book, and it was someone from Silicon Valley. And at the time, you know, they had said yes. And when they saw my chapter and my views on digital pollution, they backed out of writing the foreword. Oh, wow. And to my editor, my editor says to me, you know, that has not happened to me even once in my entire career. <laughs> so I am proud to have been that book where someone backed out of writing a foreword. And by the way, I am so glad that that happened.
0: Yeah, well, people really get to show their spots, right? But I guess you're not going to name and shame that person on the record. But, yeah. No,
1: absolutely. Not because I I think, (laughs) no, and in fact, I would never mention their name, right? Because I think people hold certain values as core to them, right? And I think one value that I've seen people, and this is very polarizing, there are some people who believe that business is about profitability and building successful products. And there's no place for us to think about, you know, whether this is digital pollution, whether it's we're thinking about well being of our users and things like that. Like that is what free markets are there for. Free markets will solve it. And then there's the other group which feels like, well, you know, we should start taking responsibility. They're starting to see what this is doing to society. And you really belong in one of the two camps. And that's why it's been so polarizing.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely fair enough. And you again really get to see people's true colours when they start to object against that sort of thing. So obviously you're talking then about the more ethical side of the book and how that landed with people. But do you feel that the general message of the book, the general concept of having a radical product vision, moving away from iteration-based approaches and really trying to lead with that vision, did that in itself land with people, do you think? Or have there been any skepticism about that as well?
1: No, that has landed really well with people. And I think what made me really happy is that people see this as a way of creating change in the world, that it's not just about building products and the most meaningful was you know people saying to me that i feel like this gives me a more intentional approach for just even going about our life more intentionally and that to me is like the biggest lesson right like product is not just about building products product thinking is what we apply anywhere
0: yeah absolutely So, before we did speak about the main themes of the book, and frankly, people can go back and listen to that interview if they want to understand more about the general concept of radical product thinking. I think we gave that a good stab last time. But we probably sped through one of the most important parts of the book, certainly from a societal perspective, which is obviously why we're here today, which is the, as you say, effectively those two chapters, the third part of the book, and the hypothesis, which frankly isn't really a hypothesis, it's very true that companies are prioritizing money and growth over doing the right thing, causing digital pollution. And you call out five different types of digital pollution in the book. I won't read them all out. But what are some of the things to look out for as a product manager or a product leader when you're trying to assess the impact of your own products and how digitally polluting they are?
1: Yeah. I think first, the main thing I wanted to do was introduce this concept of digital pollution. because. Just as the industrial boom led to environmental pollution, this carefree growth in the digital era has led to digital pollution. And we could only start to deal with climate change, to deal with environmental pollution once we could start to recognize the different types of environmental pollution, and once we had a framework for understanding what it is so that we could do something about it. The problem with digital pollution is that, you know, unlike environmental pollution, it's very abstract. You don't see it with your naked eye. You're not seeing smog. You're not seeing it in the soil, et cetera, or the water. And as a result, it's much harder to get our minds around it. And so the first step as a product manager is to recognize what digital pollution is. And that's why I was listing these five types. So the five types, just to mention them briefly, right? One is increasing inequality in society. We do this through algorithms where, you know, there might be bias in our algorithms. So for instance, you know, whether it's not giving parole to some people or how we do policing all the way to who gets dates and who doesn't get a date, we introduce bias or increase inequality in society. The other part of that same inequality is how we create inequality through our business practices. Like the whole gig economy, if we think about it, you know, that just increases the divide between rich and poor. And as a company, we're shifting risk to the employee. Yeah. So that's increasing inequality. Attention hijacking is basically where we're competing for users' attention, which is that one finite resource. And this basically takes away nuance in society and just makes it all about little sound bites. Everything is conveyed in sound bites which just makes it very hard to absorb information and think at a deeper level on things and make informed choices.
0: Yeah, no, that definitely happens.
1: <laughs> <sighs> the third one it, to me is the ideological polarization, which we've seen so much of. This is probably the one that we recognize most easily because Facebook has gotten so much attention over it, yeah. YouTube for its rabbit hole effect, et cetera. The fourth one is, You know, where we erode privacy. This is where, you know, again, we start thinking about the big guys like Facebook eroding privacy. But the reality is every single one of our products is collecting metadata on people. And it's this large swath of data that can be really mined for information about a particular user. We often forget how much responsibility this collecting metadata comes with. And to me, without having privacy, it's very hard to have democracy because you need privacy to be able to have free speech. And so that's a form of pollution. And then the last type that I talk about is erosion of the information ecosystem, where it's so easy to find information, but yet very hard to gain knowledge because you really have a hard time trusting what's fact and what's fiction. So those are the five types of pollution. And the thing is, as a product manager, we have to think about how might our product be contributing to any of these types of pollution. And yes, there are the big, like the big oil companies, there are the tech giants that do a lot of all of these. But each of us has the responsibility to think about like, how in even small ways are we contributing to these types of pollutions through our product?
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting about the small step, like the pebble effect, right? Like it doesn't have to be a big rock slide for it to be a problem everyone's contributing a little way, and especially when they start sharing stuff around between different parts of the ecosystem, or maybe even really just really thoughtlessly trying to introduce some kind of, I don't know, personalization or something like that, which is seems benign up front. But I guess, to to your point, people aren't really thinking through all of the ways that that could potentially go wrong, which is interesting, because I remember just on that topic, actually, something that came up recently from Apple which was around their attempts to basically reduce the amount of abuse material that people could, for example, be sharing around their phones, storing in their iCloud. Now, I can't think of many people that would say that that's a bad goal. And maybe even on the balance of things, their approach was and is right. But there was obviously also an uproar about the privacy concerns of that, because by doing this, they're also opening up the potential for other types of censorship to happen as well. Like, you know, Censorship by governments or anyone who wants anyone to not have anything on their phones, just have a way to get rid of that. Now, do you think it's possible to go too far the other way? Like you're so well meaningly trying to prevent one thing, but you have to cause one of the other types of digital pollution.
1: So, actually, I'm so glad you brought up this example of Apple. And this is one topic that I'm so passionate about. I wrote a detailed article on this, which I'll share with you afterwards. (laughs) But I am so glad you brought this up because. It is a perfect example of the cause behind erosion of privacy sounding heroic, that yes, we want to prevent child abuse and we want to prevent the CSAM material from getting around, right? And so just for our listeners, like, okay, what is Apple doing about this? So the idea is that they're going to look at content on your phone to be able to say, okay, well, which of these pictures matches this database that they have? to be able to find CSAM material and then inform authorities. But this means that they're basically finding a backdoor to the content on your phone. And if we set aside the CSAM database for a moment, like replace CSAM database with other kinds of content, this could be, you know, you could have other types of topics on some protests or whatever else it is. but you could use the same functionality just tweaked a little bit in different countries to do other things right with yeah and that's the scary part to me like apple used to be this bastion of you know we will save privacy to going all the way to the other extreme where whatsapp was actually criticizing apple for their stance of (laughs) privacy which to me you know felt like hella just frozen over right to me what is unfortunate is this backdoor to privacy was what politicians had been asking about for ages. They'd been saying that they wanted this and Apple had said no categorically for a long time. And this was a way of just giving in and for the reasons of, oh, this will protect kids. That is always the reason for introducing bad laws that we're going to be reactive and, you know, to do this one good thing, we'll do this evil thing. And that's the problem. Like I think we as consumers need to realize how important privacy is. That privacy cannot be just for a few. It's either for everyone or for no one at all. That journalists, human rights activists, they can't go about their job without privacy. And by eroding privacy in this way, essentially, it's eroding our ability to have free speech and democracy as a result.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think. A lot of those arguments make sense. But on the flip side, you're still, I know we're not, but like technically coming out against preventing a horrific crime, basically, as well, which is the, that's where it starts to get really interesting when having debates about this, because that's an easy thing for people to throw back at you. Like they sit there and say, well, if you're against this, then you're pro that. And it's obviously not that simple. But how do you defeat some of those arguments when you're in a situation where someone's trying to use the most absurd version of the argument and throw that back in?
1: You know, I uh, so in this case, with Apple in particular, even Apple tells you, oh, here's a very simple opt-out that you can do so that we cannot access your phone, right? Like, <laughs> even Apple is telling you how you can get around this issue. So those who really are Trying to use this for child abuse material. I mean, they have other ways of dealing with it, right? Yeah. But I go back to what is that really famous saying that says, you know, those who are willing to give up privacy for security deserve neither? Yeah. And that's exactly kind of what it comes to. I think as a society, you know, we have to realize that democracy is something which is like this, it needs to be nurtured, it's this gently kindled flame. That could get snuffed out at any point. We can't take that for granted. And this need for privacy is what will continue to protect that flame.
0: No, absolutely. But one of the things that we've discussed, and you kind of touched on it a little bit before, is that a large number of companies are prioritizing profits and growth, live in the capitalist dream, live in the free market dream, or nightmare, depending on which way you look at it. And you also represent this in the book using a version of the prisoners dilemma to show how some of this thinking comes about to kind of boil it down basically if everyone's out for themselves they're not going to get to the best solution because they don't know what other people are going to do so they just do the worst thing for everyone how can we fight against that because some people and maybe even that person who wouldn't write something in your book like they're just going to say this is just the way that the free market works and that anyone that doesn't think like that is you know no better than a communist right so how do we persuade them that this isn't just about us being kind of lefties, but that, you know, that this is actually an important problem? Yeah,
1: I think one thing that I want us to realize as product people is that I think there's a fundamental shift in how this next generation is thinking about the future. You know, when we were growing up, right, we always looked at technology and innovation as progress. We always saw it as the world is getting better because we're making technological progress. I look at the generation today, they don't share that level of optimism. A lot of the younger people I talk to, they say that they don't feel like it's right to bring a life into this world. I can't tell you how many people have said this to me. Yeah. They've said that they would be willing to foster kids or adopt kids, but not to bring a life into this world. And that to me, right, is really hard hitting. It's a profound shift that they don't feel like the world is getting better, where they would want to bring a life into this world if we now think about ourselves as product people and say, well, what is our responsibility in this? We have to think about, are we building products that create the change that we want to see in the world? Like, are we contributing to the world in a way that leaves the legacy that we want to leave behind? And I think for the thoughtful listeners among us, you know, the really smart product people, there is this inkling that we want to do something meaningful. And I think never before has this feeling been as strong, especially after this pandemic, when I think we realize, like, as as a human race, we have to kind of think about this collective well-being. And so, if we want to have meaningful work, what does that mean for us? And this is where I think we have to vote with our labor. We have to decide, you know, what is this legacy we want to leave behind? And what are we willing to build as products to leave behind that legacy? And then, if you have that clear vision, Then you say, okay, what does that mean for my product? You make then the right trade-offs between your vision for what change you want and what kind of a job you'll take on. That's the survival. You know, in our last podcast, we talked about vision versus survival. (laughs) I think we can use that for our personal lives. You have a vision for the world that you want to bring about. Survival is bringing home the bacon. And so if your job is helping you do both, well, that's wonderful. If not, it calls for, well, what do you want to change? Are you going to take on vision debt by just taking on a job that pays the bills, but it really goes against your vision? Like how much vision debt are you willing to take on and how much are you willing to invest in the vision, which is basically maybe the job doesn't pay as well, but it really aligns with your vision and finding the right balance for yourself.
0: But that thing about voting with your feet and taking your labor elsewhere, I think is a really important point. because. I've reflected from time to time on the fact that some of these companies that are kind of getting trashed in the news all the time and, you yeah, know, frankly doing a bunch of really questionable things from time to time, they're basically going to be staffed by people that not all of, but many of which are going to be just like you or me, like people that have some of the values that we share and maybe some of the overall goals to make the world a little bit of a better place, but they're still working for these companies. Now, to me, that feels somewhat. You know, akin to cognitive dissonance, right? You're sitting there in a company that's being constantly hauled over the coals because of a thing that they've done or an issue that they've caused or some horrific problems that they've exacerbated, but you're still working for them. How do you think it's possible for someone who does maybe share more of a utopian dream for the future can continue to remain in those jobs?
1: I think you touched on the key point when you said cognitive dissonance. Our brain goes to great lengths to avoid cognitive dissonance. (laughs) I think we justify our actions in like really creative
2: ways
1: (laughs) (laughs) when we work for companies like that, right? I think what happens is we don't want to think of ourselves as bad or unethical. And therefore, we try to find what is good about our work. Like, for instance, you know, I've talked to people who work in social media, and often they bring up like, Oh, look, you know, my work, it does help people connect with each other. And so they focus on that and avoid thinking about all the bad things that the product does do. And I think this is where we have to kind of take an honest look in the mirror and say, you know, how much bad stuff is your product doing? And you have a choice.
0: Yeah, I think... It's interesting, that whole point. Yeah, sure, we're bringing people together. But of course, the implication as well is you're also bringing lots of unpleasant people together as well. Like it's not that you're just bringing the good people together. Bringing people together in itself has a certain level of responsibility. And something that these companies quite often do, and presumably the product people within them, is they kind of just paint themselves as like dumb pipes. Like we're just there. People just do what they want in our platform. We'll try and moderate it the best we can, but that's a really hard challenge because there's so much data. So it's not really our fault. We'll do our best, but you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you get these studies coming out saying, well, yeah, these algorithms have been massively overweighting right-wing content or hate speech or whatever, because that's what's getting the clicks. So do you buy this whole we're a dumb pipe argument? Absolutely
1: not. And I think this is where we need laws with teeth to come in, right? But the moment, even as I say that, I know that laws with teeth for them to kick in will take not just decades, but way more than that. Like if I look at environmental pollution and how long when you could see the black smog in the air in London in the 1600s and how long it took for environmental laws with teeth to kick in to actually curb pollution, it took 300 years. Yeah. And that's phenomenal to think about because we don't even see the effects of digital pollution with our naked eye. So I think for laws to with teeth to kick in will take a long time. But here's where I'm seeing some hope. In Australia, for example, there was just in February, there was this whole spat between the government and Facebook and Google. The government insisted that Facebook and Google had to pay for local news. Yep. And This was where Facebook actually flexed their muscle and said, well, we'll turn off services in the country. And they did that for a week, right? And it was an interesting sign to governments around the world that you kind of need to rein in these companies. And without that, this is how they can flex their power. So it was fascinating to see that at the end of that, there was an agreement reached, compromise on both ends, and Facebook and Google did have to commit to paying for local news. To me, that's an interesting starting point. So this is kind of what needs to happen. Governments need to realize that they do have power and that they can do something about it and start to rein in this kind of power. But there's a second piece to this, right? I think even in how we're thinking about it today, we're thinking about this misinformation mostly from the rich country's perspective. And it shows in how Facebook allocates resources. Yeah. So for instance, Facebook doesn't want to get into trouble with the US authorities. And so 87% of their resources spent on curbing misinformation is spent on US and 13% is dedicated for the rest of the world. What is unfortunate about this is that this makes it look so much like colonialism, Yeah. where the whole idea behind colonialism, right? was going into poorer countries, extracting wealth, and then leaving them behind in shambles. Yeah. And Facebook is doing something similar where, okay, they're in India, they're in Myanmar, etc. You know, they don't deal with the misinformation there. There was so much violence that was incited because of Facebook posts in both of these countries. And they kind of left those countries in shambles afterwards saying, well, you know, just, they did enough to protect their name. So for instance, they worked on Myanmar's yep. misinformation during the time of the November 2020 elections. But afterwards it was like, okay, guys, we're done. We're done here. And they kind of stopped that effort, even though it was showing that they were having good results. Right. So what we have to realize in regulating these big tech companies is that if we don't think about this from a more global perspective, we're doing more of this colonialism through these big tech companies extracting wealth from the poorer nations and then leaving them in shambles?
0: Yeah, it's tough in a way to think, for example, your example of Myanmar, if the US government and the Western European governments who've obviously you know running much bigger economies and much more important to Facebook on a financial perspective, like what chance do they have if the rest of the world can't get their act together as well? So it does seem like an interesting problem to solve. But in the book you talk about some ways that we might persuade companies to do a better job in some of these areas. And you talk about the three I's. So one of them's intimidation, which you just kind of covered, sort of regulatory oversight, incentives, so trying to motivate them economically, and inspiration, so just kind of trying to appeal to their better natures, I guess. Now, free market libertarians are going to hate the regulation. The companies seem to already have all the money in the world anyway. And it feels like relying on people's moral compasses is somewhat optimistic depending on the people so what do you think the most promising approach could be to try to enact some of this change does it just come down to regulation or do you think there's promise in some of the other areas as well
1: i really feel like it has to be a combination of all three there has to be regulation but regulation is going to take a long time and it always plays catch up so that goes that's the intimidation part the incentives you know that too kind of comes together with intimidation like governments can create incentives for
0: take the money away
1: (laughs) exactly right it it can be you know do this and we won't break you up for example (laughs) but the incentives is also realizing that we as product people we can build business models that aren't necessarily in conflict with our users that is one of the key problems that i see you know we always think about this. As you either have to be altruistic and think of user well-being, or you're thinking about financials and building successful products, and in which case you ignore user well-being. I don't feel like it has to be this either-or. And the example I like to give, right, is this company Lemonade that works on insurance. So the way the insurance business model works is you pay your insurance premiums, and the premiums, of course, are the profit centers for these insurance companies. And every time you file a claim, well, that's eating out of the company's profits. Yeah. So instead, what Lemonade does is when you pay your insurance premium, they take a fixed percentage or a fixed fee out of that insurance premium. And then your insurance premium goes into a pool and all the claims are paid out of that pool. And at the end of the year, when all the claims are paid out, the money that is left over in the pool goes to a charity of your choice what is nice about this model is that now it aligns the company's incentives with the user's incentives so when you file a claim it's not directly hitting the company's profits the profits are going out of that fixed percentage anyway so it's really going out of that pool so now when the company's incentives are aligned with the user's incentives You know, the user files a claim and the company has every reason to pay it out really quickly. Yeah. We don't have to always build business models that are against users' incentives. If we look at Facebook's business model, the idea is to get the most attention out of users, hijack as much of their attention as possible to be able to keep them on the site. And so this business model basically goes against the user's well being. And that's where, as product people, we can make conscious choices about which products we want to work on and whether those business models inherently are against users' well-being, which makes it very hard to build products then that you can feel ethically good about.
0: (laughs) But this goes back then to the product Hippocratic Oath again, right, which we touched on a bit in a previous interview. It's obviously part of the book, whole chapter about it. The idea that we as product people are kind of like doctors and to our earlier point like the well-being of our users is our responsibility and it's not just about giving them a tablet and then making them walk off and fend for themselves you know it's our responsibility
1: exactly and this is the part that goes to the inspiration piece that yeah we have to realize how much responsibility comes with exactly what you said that essentially as product people we are looking at the problem that our user has and we're prescribing our product to them saying you know take this you'll feel better We can't then walk away and say, well, you know what, after that, like, if you take this product, and and it's making you feel lousy, well, you know, good luck to you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but then that then begs a question, which is like, we talked earlier about the kind of adapted prisoners dilemma, where all these companies are just out for themselves. And I think it's fair to say that the leaders of many companies could be considered kind of hard nosed business people, right? Because they're kind of operating under that model that we've already discussed. So I guess the question is, like a Hippocratic Oath, or product Hippocratic Oath sounds fabulous to me, I'll sign it and try and adhere to it. But how do we sell that in to the world? Because the whole point of that prisoner's dilemma scenario is that you need a majority of people to be doing this. Otherwise, other people will just always be out for themselves anyway, right?
2: You're
1: so right. And this is why I think I'm trying to spread this recognition of digital pollution and kind of how we're affecting society through products. I don't think there is a wide enough awareness of this. So what can we do as product people? Like, I think one of the first thing is, think about what digital pollution you're contributing to, but spread this idea that society is being affected by products. And that is a form of digital pollution. You know, as companies, it was the same thing when it came to environmental pollution. One company has no incentive to deal with environmental pollution and say, you know, I'm not going to pollute if everyone else is polluting. There has to be this awareness more widely this is what pollution is causing and how it's affecting humanity. We need to build that same sort of awareness with digital pollution.
0: Yeah, we need to get that copy of your book into as many people's <laughs> hands as possible. But I wondered if you, in all of your career, have ever worked on something, you know, some product or service that you look back on and think, yeesh, shouldn't have done that? Or have you always been on the right side of the argument?
1: No, I'm so glad you asked this question. I do look back and say that there there is a product that I worked on where I look back and feel like I shouldn't have done that. And I'll tell you what it is. So I was working on a robotics and warehouse automation product. You know, the problem Gives you a lot of intellectual satisfaction to solve it because you're working on robotics to really automate these warehouses. And you know, we talked about how our brain goes long ways to justify why we're doing (laughs) (laughs) what we're doing is the right thing. Right. And in retrospect, I looked at that work and I was feeling like, look, this is backbreaking work for a lot of warehouse employees. So by automating all of these things, we're removing this backbreaking work. And yes, it's hard to find labor for a lot of these organizations to even staff this backbreaking work. So we're doing the right thing here. But, you know, honestly, I still look back and feel like I had a choice. I could use all of my intellectual powers to work on that product, or I could be doing something else. I feel like I could have been working on something else, really. (laughs) And, And this is something, you know, most of us, like we realize if we look back on certain projects. We recognize that the satisfaction we get comes from an intellectual satisfaction of having solved a hard problem, Yeah. but not necessarily this filling the soul. And so I think we should recognize that sometimes this intellectual satisfaction is not the same as satisfying your soul and thinking about, you know, can we find work that satisfies the soul? And that is much harder to find by, I, I will absolutely admit.
0: No, 100%. I think from my perspective, I've worked in the past, not anymore, but in the past, a lot in the market research industry. So a lot of work around sort of data collection, cookie tracking, site monitoring and stuff like that. And I'd say that on the balance of things, you know, maybe I'm just lying to myself, but it always felt slightly more benign than some of the uses that you could do for that stuff, because you're paying people and there are good data controls and stuff like that. But you still look back on it and think, you know, are we contributing to the problem? And I guess I've always had this idea in my head that one day I'll go and work for some health tech company or some other kind of tech for good type company. Although the thing with health tech companies is half of those are just trying to sell drugs as well, right? So it's not the, it's not quite, I mean, yeah, the the outcome is different, I guess, but you're still making money for someone. That's just something you have to get over, I guess. And what's next in your mission? to drive positive change? I mean, you've got the book, obviously, you keep talking to people like me about some of the themes from within it. But are you involved in any other initiatives that are ongoing to try and help spread that word?
1: I'm working with a few organizations and helping product people make their work feel more meaningful, feel like their products are creating the change that they want to bring. But the second piece of this is also finding areas where, you know, we can be more vision driven in terms of creating the change that we want to see in. Specific industries that I am really passionate about. So, for example, there's one organization I'm working with that's in healthcare and it's about helping them see their vision for how they want to create change for patients. In a different scenario, you know, I'm talking to other colleagues who work in the DEI space and many companies, for example, they work on diversity, equity and inclusion but without a clear vision for why should we even be
0: inclusive? (laughs) Just to tick a box, right?
1: Exactly. And that never works, right? You can never create change without a clear vision for why do you need to do it? And so thinking about, you know, what's our vision for change and even inclusion, why do we need to do it? Aligning teams on that. So a lot of my work is around areas that I'm both passionate about, but with companies that really want to see change and create change and build products that are
0: more efficient driven Ah, sounds good and i hope that we can see some of the fruits of those labors as the months and years progress but i know the answer to this one but just in case anyone didn't listen to the previous episode where can people catch up with you after this if they want to find out more about the book or maybe even tap you up for some guidance on how to be more ethical and prevent their digital footprint from polluting the world even more
1: so the the book Radical Product Thinking is on bookshelves. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Book Depository if you're international. And you can reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. Uh, I always love to hear how people are creating change through radical product thinking. And then lastly, I think, you know, definitely go back and listen to Jason and my conversation <laughs> from the previous podcast, which was such a blast recording with you.
0: There you go. If we can't advertise our own conversation on the second conversation, then what kind of world is this?
2: Exactly.
0: I think I might go and listen to it now as well, just for for fun. Well, no, I think that's been a really interesting phase two of our conversation. Who knows, maybe one day we'll do a phase three when we think of something else to talk about, but obviously really good to delve in more detail to some of the topics that we maybe skimmed over a bit last time. So really genuinely, thanks for coming on. We'll obviously stay in touch, but yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I feel truly honored to be your first repeat (laughs) guest and hope I can be the third time (laughs) repeater.
0: Fingers crossed. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onelightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share it with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.